You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week's edition of The Razor's Edge is with Zbuni CEO Rami Asaf. Zbuni is a chat commerce company based in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. It's focused on facilitating the lives of vendors who sell via WhatsApp and social channels in general. While they're focused on the Middle East and North Africa region, I think there's a lot here for e-commerce and chat commerce people to consider in general, including anyone following Square, Shopify, Facebook, and Amazon. So I think you'll enjoy this. Before we begin, disclosures are that none of us have any positions in any stocks named Of course, Rami is CEO of Spoonie, which is private. I should also mention that we recorded this on January 6th, before the attack on the U.S. Capitol, but also before news broke about WhatsApp's privacy policy update. So keep that in mind for the conversation. Let's get into it. All right, Rami, welcome to the Razor's Edge. It's good to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just before we get into lots to talk about with Spoonie, with what you're seeing in Dubai, but just... Give us the quick story as far as what brought you to where you are now, where both living wise and in terms of the company and what you've what you've been doing there. Sure. I grew up in the States and I lived in Southern California most of my life. Went to school there, graduated, stuck around for a few years, and I was working in mostly digital lead gen, digital marketing, helping businesses generate more demand. It was, it was getting competitive and it was right after the financial crisis. And I just had this idea in my head that Dubai was such a cool place. And if I could just go there, it would probably be a lot less competitive and I could really kill it over there. Because anything you think of doing in the States, there's, you know, like a hundred people doing it already, uh, thousands. So I said, let me go there give it a shot for a few years, see how it goes. So I arrived and I, I was recruited for, to a company called Zawiya. Zara is a financial information services provider. So it's like a Bloomberg for the Middle East. Worked there for about two years and then it went pretty well. The company got acquired in 2011 by Thomson Reuters. And from there, a few of the founders of that company had started something new, like a lab where, you know, okay, let's, let's stick with doing this. Let's do more startups. I worked with that group for a couple of years. We did a few other startups and everything from the recruitment space to food ordering to 
online gifting, really good learning experience. And mind you, this is still 2012, 2013. And I had started a project at that time, my own little pet project called Friendshipper. And that was related to peer-to-peer -peer shipping. That didn't really go anywhere. It didn't even have a business model. That was part of the problem. And then I was kind of like, okay, maybe entrepreneurship, maybe running the startup isn't for me. And I had an opportunity to join a VC. So I joined one of the groups out here as one of the VC groups, one of the first ones. And it was a different experience. It was now, okay, we're, I'm on the other side of the table. I get to judge the quality of these startups and then hopefully put some input in and get some investments, get, get a portfolio going, get some points. And, you know, on some of these exits, make some money, spent about two years there. And I was like, okay, this is not what I had in mind. And it was more, it wasn't, the, it was an amazing experience, right? So now you, you understand like, oh, you know, I know how to now gauge a business and look at all these other angles. Because when you're seeing 600 pitch decks a year or 800, whatever it was, it refines you. And it's like almost uh, like a pseudo MBA. Around that time, I remember I was driving on the highway here and my wife was like, Hey, I want to start my own business. And I panicked, like in my head, I panicked. And I was like, oh no, what are you going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to sell hats. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, I'm going to sell these hats. They're like beach hats and we custom embroider different messages. So it could say birthday boy or, you know, bachelorette or whatever. We custom embroider these hats and we sell them. I was like, okay, fine. Sounds low risk enough, but I'm not sure if you're going to have any resonance with this, but go for it. And I wanted to be helpful to her, you know, because I'm in that space, so to speak. I could be able to advise and do stuff. So I was like, do you want to, uh, how can I help you? Do you want like an e-commerce, I'll set up an e-commerce website for you. And her response was like, not really, don't really need that. That's not how it works anymore. We're just going to put our hats up on Instagram. And if people want to order them, they can just send us a direct message or a WhatsApp. And I was like, okay. So, you know, in my head, I'm like, this is pretty goofy stuff, but okay, go for it. And a few weeks go by and she, sure enough, starts selling hats. And it's like five hats, 10 hats, 20 hats a week, 50 hats, 100. And my living room at home has now turned into like this hat emporium. And listen, I need help delivering this one. This one, needs to, the customer hasn't paid yet. This one, I forgot. Which one did they order again? And it's just like... The problem isn't getting customers, it's how do you actually deliver these things and how do you fulfill and how do you collect payment? How do you organize yourself? So, you know, a few things kind of sunk into my head all at the same time. It was kind of like, we're living in an era that is a social first era, which is different, right? This is now 2016. So a couple of observations. One, to start a business, the barrier to entry had almost reduced to zero. In the time we've been chatting, we could have gone on Instagram, created an account and announced we're selling anything. And it's real now because it's on Instagram and I have photos of them and you can order from me. And that's the new bar, right? Like if you can do that, you can start a business. And so the theory was, okay, this is gonna be the new behavior. So a hundred years ago, I wanted to start a business. I have to go rent a place or buy a place, whatever. I have a physical space, I have to get my inventory, put it there. 
than e-commerce, digital, internet, fantastic. I can create a website. I can put my products there. Customers can come check out about it. But now we're in a social era or a post-social era. And the new port of call, so to speak, is like, you know, these social platforms. And that's where the consumers are spending their time. What does it look like to do commerce now through that channel? We, I figured there's going to be an all, this is going to change the dynamics. And at the same time, something else was happening, which was because I'm a business that's functioning this way, that's taking orders by, by WhatsApps and by DMs, my customers have no choice but to send me a WhatsApp or a DM to order. Instead of that being annoying or a jarring experience, it looked like that was actually something the consumer liked, right? And it was like a new consumer behavior had emerged. And by the way, Chris Messina that year coined, that's when he coined the phrase chat commerce or conversational commerce. We didn't Who have coined it? It was Chris Messina, the, the inventor of the hashtag. Okay. So we were like, yeah, that, that's it. Ch- chat commerce. You know, that's what we're talking about. And I, I attribute that to something like the Goldilocks theory where, you know, if the earth was just a few miles further from the sun and we would all freeze. And if it was a few miles closer to the sun, we'd all burn. So it's just right in that perfect radius. So chat emerged as like this new consumer option for B2C. Email is too cold and phone calls too hot, too intrusive. And chat is just right from a consumer psychology standpoint. I can talk to the business directly. I can be personal enough. I get personal attention. If I don't want to look at my phone at that second, I don't have to. I don't have to pick up the phone and interrupt myself. I can do it casually. So it has all these attributes that are really interesting. So we're like, huh. And when I say we, it was like just me and a few of my friends in Dubai who we were like, you know, these lone rangers (laughs) that worked in tech. I was like, listen, I think there's something here, right? There's something, something interesting is happening here. So we got together. We did our little research. We conducted some research. We all quit our jobs and we said, listen, we're going to do this thing. We're going to create a a solution for merchants who are using social media as their storefront, but we're going to connect all the dots behind the scenes. And in reality, it was quite a robust thing to build. It was a desktop solution. It accounted for everything, order management and CRM and fulfillment and product management and inventory and et cetera. And we probably over-engineered the heck out of this thing. And it was desktop, but we took it to market. And there was some resonance there. People were like, oh, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, I can, okay. And we had like enterprises that were interested and small businesses and medium size, And everyone was, wanted to, to understand like, okay, interesting. I, yeah, I use WhatsApp for business. How do I use And keep in mind, it's 2016, 2017. So WhatsApp hadn't made its move yet into any of this WhatsApp for business stuff. We got some proof of life there. People started using it. It didn't, I wouldn't say it was like an instant hit. It was very experimental. And this is high stakes stuff because we're in Dubai. This isn't a few kids in a garage and in the States who have no expenses. This is like we have to pay for an office and a license and all this stuff. And so we need results very quickly. Getting a product market fit, you, you can't afford years at this. So we were fortunate we had some like angel investors who were a bit patient with us because they saw how passionate and excited we were about this. And then in 2018, we get the call. It's Facebook. Listen, guys, we see you. Love it. 
come over, red carpet treatment. We want to invite you over to this incubation program. Come spend six months with us here. So we go to Menlo Park. And now we're in the belly of the beast. They start opening the kimono. This is what Instagram is doing for the next couple of years, as far as we know. This is what WhatsApp is doing. This is what, how we see the world of social, social commerce. We're learning from them what their roadmaps look like. And that helps us a, a tremendous amount because now it's not a black box anymore. Now we can kind of foresee what's supposed to happen in the next couple of years. And we realized that the biggest problem we were doing is we just weren't focused enough, right? And we, we knew it. So we came back, we said, okay, listen, we have a lot of business segments using this. So you have people selling physical products and people doing food and beverage, and you have people doing selling services and consultants and whatever. They all kind of use this thing in one way or another. But the thing that affects them the most or the most ubiquitous pain point for all of them is really they all suffer with payments. And that, that's twofold. One of them is how am I supposed to integrate a payments option onto this WhatsApp channel or onto this Instagram channel when that's not available? And then two, it's for a lot of small businesses, especially in this part of the world, and in Dubai or Greater Mina, getting online and accepting payments—it's a nightmare. It's a terrible experience. I couldn't be worse. So this put us on, and, and we went fully mobile. End of 2018, we were a fully mobile product. And from there, we said, okay, we're going to hyper-optimize. We're going to solve for payments, and we're going to do it on mobile, and we're going to do it for these social channels. And from there, it started really taking off. And from there, we were able to kind of get more investors on board, hire a few more people, and got pretty interesting. We saw the world differently now and what we could do and all this stuff. And I'm not going to talk about COVID yet, because I'm sure you're going to ask about that. So I'll kind of stop there. But because you guys are, are looking at public markets all the time, and I do listen to the show, so there's a lot of parallels we learned along the way. With So, so today, you're really focused. We, you could say, okay, we've kind of pioneered this payment, sending a payment link or optimized payment links that create checkout cards on WhatsApp, right? And that's, that's not a company. That's just a feature or one solution. But in many ways, I draw parallels with what we've done to some of our counterparts or our hero companies. And I really look up to Square and Shopify, right? Because why do I have to reinvent the wheel? They've kind of done it. They've solved for a lot of these things. So if you think about Square and what they do and how they started, right? It was like, they didn't do everything from day one. It was really just a one-trick pony. Like, we're going to give you this card reader. It's going to connect to your phone. And voila, you can accept payments now. If you're at a physical event, this is a great way to, uh, to cater to your customers better. And you can accept payments and you can be you know, a real professional. You can be somebody, take credit card payments, debit payments. From there, that's whatever, 2009, fast forward eight years or 10 years, the company does a whole number of things way beyond that now. Right? So it's about providing a suite of merchant services. But their entry point had to start somewhere. So for them, it was the card reader. For Shopify, it's, yeah, it is pretty difficult to build a website. What if we made it easier to build one of these e-commerce websites? Okay, let's, that's their entry point. But if you look at the menu of what you can get from Square and the menu of what you can get from Shopify, they are remarkably similar. 
when you fast forward 10 years, all right, I can go to Square now and start with a website builder and build my website there and I'll get the payment solution on top. I can go to Shopify and get my point of sale device. For us, it was like, okay, this, these, the WhatsApp payment links, that for us was just a, a wedge to get in the door, to differentiate yourself with something. And now from there, we, we're following, what does it look like to continue on what a merchant needs and solve for more and build something more like a Square or a Shopify when it comes to a cohesive commerce solution? Pay- payments is a cornerstone, but there's much more to that. So I um, hope that's a good intro for you guys. It's interesting what you, the journey just in terms of the product development from let's try to offer a full suite to no, we need to focus and build our beachhead essentially. And now that you've got that, it's back to, okay, now where we can expand, which if, if I understood that correctly, which is interesting when we talk so much about SaaS companies and that's a point product, but now they want to sell you analytics or whatever. Obviously we, we talk a ton about that, but is that the, like, that's sort of the, the way you've come at this is that you started out thinking you could do everything realized that wasn't going to work. So then you focused on one aspect, but now you've sort of won that game and you can start thinking about helping your clients now that you have the door open and the reputation with them. Yeah. I think a couple of things we did try and do everything, but we weren't really good at doing any single one of them. So if you come out the gates with like 10 features, none of which have been tested in the, in the wild. It's very unlikely that you're going to hit a home run across the board. Whereas if we poured all of our energy into one of those features and made sure we hyper-optimize that, so that that thing works, that gives you the clearance to do feature two and do that correctly and then feature three. So it's, I think, it, yes, we're reverse engineering it now. We're going to end up with what we wanted to do initially, but we're actually going to do it correctly, I guess. So one of the, you mentioned being in the belly of the beast and today we're recording this on Wednesday, the 6th, right in the States, the Senate elections appear to have gone to Democrats, which has put big tech in the spotlight. So it's interesting, Facebook for a second. I I think we've mentioned their role in e-commerce and I don't think this is a secret, but what do you see? Because you your site also mentions Instagram. Like, what do you see as far as Facebook's play as much as you can discuss it since you've kind of, you've partnered with them? Where do they fit into e-commerce? Where do they fit into all these changing environment? We'll get into the COVID impact specifically, but like, where do they fit in? And the fact that they kind of noticed what you were doing in their channel essentially is interesting. So like, where, what did you learn about, or what do you think about their positioning? There's this impression that Facebook is sitting there with all this data and they have all these resources and they have this grand master plan and they know exactly what their roadmap looks like and they know exactly what's going on everywhere. They've got the whole thing figured out. And I learned that that's not really the case. It's a bit disjointed internally, just like at a small company. When there's an issue, oh, because that that time when I was there it was it was what are we gonna do about fake news, right? Okay, let's put a task force together. Let's get a, that ten thousand moderators and start monitoring for fake news and figure out. So it gets steered ad hoc in different directions, just like any other company can. 
Uh, that's one thing I learned. So they don't necessarily get the chance to do everything that they want to do on their roadmap because they have to respond to their realities around them as well. Like they don't get to choose. That's one. Two is they don't really know what's going on. Like we think they do. At least, I mean, products, teams that we talk to. You know, in Saudi Arabia, for their Eid holiday, it's tradition for Muslims to order a sheep, to have one slaughtered. And a lot of that, you have like sheep slaughtering capabilities. Like you can order that through Instagram and WhatsApp. And all of that, the bios for these stores and all the text and all of the, these things are in Arabic. It's not like they're, they detect that, oh, you know, we have this, this is what's going on. So when I tell them stuff like that, they're like, oh, really? And they're, they're shocked to hear these things. When I was noticing at that time that, look, people on Instagram, by default, they are in their bios, like for contact me at that time, it was, it was almost ubiquitous that WhatsApp me for orders. And they put the WhatsApp logo and a phone number. And I think at that time, you maybe couldn't even put the WhatsApp, it was just a phone number, which just means WhatsApp. And so when we're talking to the, these teams, we're like, do you realize how these two products are being used together? Or being like pseudo integrated? And they're like, what are you talking yeah, about? So like one's like a storefront digital marketplace, the mall, and the other one is like your backend ordering system. Yeah. And by the way, the WhatsApp team doesn't sit in the same campus as the, the traditional Facebook team. They're in a, they're a standalone building. They're down the street. They don't like to, to hang out much with the Facebook team. They're in their own zone. You can't tell them what to do. They've got their own thing going on. The Instagram team has its own thing going on. So there are three companies, right? They're not one company. Which is, again, really relevant in terms of the Facebook. It, from the outside, it seems like they are... they management team is eager to integrate the platforms so that it becomes harder to split them up if you want to ascribe sort of a Machiavellian take to it. And you're saying that it's that because is that still how the shopping is happening? It's still go to Instagram, see something cool, follow up in WhatsApp, or has that changed that payment, that customer no, journey? It's changed. And from, they always kind of had their pulse on, okay, how do we make Instagram more shoppable? The thing at that time was they had done an integration with Shopify. And if you were running a Shopify store, you could do use the e-commerce API to connect to your Instagram page. And that introduced, you could tag your products. So in the image, you could tap it once and it would show you what you could view. And then it would, you click that and it directs you up to an external Shopify store where you can actually buy it. And that was sort of phase one. And, you know, they can track and monitor that, see if it's working, how many clicks and how many redirects are happening. To phase two was, okay, let's now make that journey shorter. Instead of clicking on a product and taking you to a third-party site, what if we could kind of let you do a native checkout here? And for Facebook, it's really important that the user stays in their realm as much as possible. They They would prefer not to send redirect you elsewhere. All right, so if I could keep you on an Instagram environment, that's better for me. Maybe better for the, and maybe it's because it's better for the user. Maybe it's a better user experience. So, what does Instagram shopping look like? What, is, what does that mean? So, am I really buying from Instagram now, or am I buying from this third-party site, but it's just been integrated into the front end of, of Instagram? In the U.S., where you have 
how many merchants are on Shopify today? I mean, a million plus, right? When you offer a feature like that, you have a million plus potential Instagram stores just in the US because they're, they're all set up on Shopify. They've done the heavy lifting. Just bring them over. We'll take the credit for the, the checkout part. They've already done their product catalog. They've already set up their payments. They've already done all this stuff. You can just kind of fast forward the, the checkout experience here. The issue was then, and what I learned at Facebook was, well, guess what? The rest of the world doesn't have a Shopify that everyone, that's ubiquitous. Having at, being on that digital commerce grid, there aren't millions of them in the Right, so they're using it differently. They're using Shopify, sorry, Instagram as a standalone service, and it's acting as my storefront. That's all I have. I'm not, I can't integrate anything with anything. The opportunity we saw was like, well, if we can aggregate as many merchants as possible and build some infrastructure for them and build put some order to them, let them accept payments, let them create product catalogs, let them do all these things. Probably naturally, there's going to be some synergy later down the road when Instagram needs to introduce shopping to this part of the world. All right, so that was the the thinking process. While this is happening, and Facebook is sort of validating us and saying, guys, go for it. This is awesome. I'm still in this part of the world, and I have to raise capital for the company, right? It's a startup. And I'm talking to investors here, and they're like, yeah, nice try, buddy. Facebook is just going to come eat your lunch. So don't even bother. And we're like, no, actually, you know, we were there and this is what we learned. And, you know, it's not like if you think about what payment, think about this, like when Facebook launched its marketplace, I don't know if you guys remember this, but if you follow the news, when Facebook launched marketplace and they do this, it's like every few years, something comes out. I think the second or third day, there were people selling like handguns and hedgehogs and weird stuff going on. And who's responsible for that? You think Facebook wants to be responsible for allowing a payment to go through to, for a handgun or whatever people want? It's too wild. And then what does it mean to enable a merchant to accept payment? You're absorbing risk of that merchant. It's hard enough to do that in a developed market. You want to do that in underdeveloped markets all over the world? Do you want people buying sunglasses in Botswana to say, hey, these aren't the, <laughs> these aren't the prescription I wanted, or these aren't the size I wanted. I, I want to return this and call customer support at Facebook. There's like no way that they can manage that, right? So Facebook delving into commerce and being a payments company, it's almost impossible. And I think they know that, right? But they'll take the credit for Oh, if the market wants to see that as you know our, our growth story, we'll take it. But in reality, it's going to be impossible. So what they do is go partner with the right people who can do that, like Shopify, like big commerce, like PayPal, right? So in Messenger back in the day, when you could start sending money to your friends in Messenger, that wasn't actually Facebook Messenger doing it. That was PayPal. That was a, like a white labeled PayPal, and you'd have to log in and add your PayPal credentials here. So they're very much interested in owning the customer time spend stickiness part. They don't want to deal with all the heavy. Well, I mean, they sell advertising, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's their core business is to get you to transact there, buy ads there, try to acquire your customers there. So if you have that, I personally think, sorry to cut you off, Romney, but in, in just watching what you guys have done over the years, 
and, and thinking about Facebook and, you know, all that, like we think about this stuff also in, in software. It's like, you know, why isn't Google, you know, Amazon going to kill this? What if Google's going to kill that? So on and so forth. But I, I do think that there's like a 1.0, 2.0 element. So people setting up a business in the United States online, they natively had already had the easy ways to set up a website and deal with that and whatnot. I think in emerging markets, by user behavior, WhatsApp kind of became a nice platform for handling things based on how it's proliferated with people. Because people still use iMessage in the United States. Like WhatsApp isn't what it is in North America as it is in Europe or the Middle East or, or, or the rest of the world. So, I mean, I do think Facebook also has, has points where it's got kind of blinders on things like that, right? Because like for them to focus on, on a market that there's already dominant players like Amazon or people providing tools, as you said, like Shopify, or like how you pointed out how Square started and like has almost gone backwards into e-invoicing, for example, or giving you these tools. Like Square starts with a reader, and now they're getting to the point where they're adding things for a small business, particularly under COVID, to stick a, a catalog and drop the links and, and handle all these things and eliminate the reader as physical hardware and leverage these other communication platforms. So I don't necessarily think that it's like Facebook looks at a market and is like, well, you know, we can't. Obviously, they're going to partner because there's people who've done it better in their core market. But what's interesting is when you look internationally, people start out building a business like your wife's example, taking orders over WhatsApp or, you know, an SMB because, well, like you said, like, let's say they weren't even familiar with or a Shopify didn't exist there or it wasn't set up to handle things there, like their workarounds. But it's it's that native user behavior, like you go where the user is. And I think one thing, Daniel, which I, I don't think he got into, which I think is always interesting about this topic is that like, I mean, when you go to a website to buy something, the conversions are way lower than when, when someone WhatsApps you, right? You're already talking to the customer. The customer is saying, oh, oh, do you have this? Do you have, oh, I wanted that. It's not like they're sitting there browsing and you may lose them. So I remember, I think Rami's explained this to me before, like in terms of the conversion, what are the, what's the difference in the conversion rate between conversational commerce? I mean, what you're talking about here is the e-commerce myth. I've coined this term. And the e-commerce myth is essentially, we can only imagine a future and e-commerce is part of it. And it's a big part of it. And eventually everything is just going to end up being e-commerce, right? Where I can just go buy anything and I don't go to the store anymore. But that doesn't really work, right? Because for a couple of reasons. One is we tend to think of all products and services being equal and you put them online and they are sold, but it's not binary like that. So depending on the category you're in, if I want to buy an iPhone, I've already been pre-sold. Apple has already convinced me that I need the, the new iPhone. I just need to go online, add it to cart, and check out, get it as quickly as possible. But if I'm doing something like taking tennis classes or I'm interested in taking tennis classes, that's not an add to cart checkout function. So that good or that item is a lot different than an iPhone because the tennis academy has, uh, you can take intermediate, uh, sorry, you can take beginner, intermediate, advanced. You could take different age groups. You can take one day a week, three days a week. You can take, you can choose between the six courts he has. And then if you're a legacy student, you get a discount. And if you're a sibling, you get another discount, et cetera, et cetera. The permutations of 
what you can buy from the tennis academy are way too many to be answered with an e-commerce website, right? Imagine solving for that. And so ultimately that business is going to remain in a category where, sorry, e-commerce doesn't really work for you, yet you still want to have digital capabilities in your business as the tennis academy. So you are in a personalized engagement with your customers to manage each transaction. But does that mean I have to still deal in cash and still deal, deal in bank transfer? So that was our edge was we can give this type of business the ability to transact digitally and accept card payments without the heavy, inf- heavy infrastructure of e-commerce, which wouldn't work for them anyway. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fit. And if, even if you are creating an amazing e-commerce experience, your conversion rate will probably hover no more than 2% which is you should high five your team if you're hitting 2% because that's great. So two out of every hundred visitors are actually going to buy something. But guess what? If you've now entered into a WhatsApp or a personal dialogue with the seller or buyer and they're, they're talking to each other, well, guess what? The, the basket size increases dramatically. Conversion rates will now be around 70, 80%. There's more trust. There's more peace of mind of the buyer. You don't have these cart abandonment issues anymore. So it's a very strong converting tool. It's a very effective tool, but it doesn't scale, right? How am I supposed to do that at scale? What if I told you you don't have to? Does a POS device scale? I can really only serve one customer at a time with a POS device. Don't you have to wait in line when you go to the store, supermarket or anywhere you go to shop? So it's the equivalent of a POS device sitting on that channel. It doesn't need to scale into the thousands per second or whatever. It just needs to do its job because I, I really only need to process 10 transactions a day or five a day. And, you know, I'll hit my numbers. So maybe we can use that to, well, first of all, implicit in that, like what your customers, your types of customers, who are you? I know we were chatting beforehand and you're in, you said you're in the Emirates, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia, but what sorts of customers do you have? You have, small business is it businesses like your wife's is it are you dealing with people that have a physical storefront already like what sorts of companies do you tend to work with so it's it's super diverse the reason it's so diverse is because the behavior we're we're solving for are are businesses that talk to their customers over whatsapp so who does that i mean here you talk to your housekeeper on WhatsApp, you talk to your travel agent on WhatsApp, you talk to your landlord on WhatsApp, you talk to the pizza place down the street on WhatsApp. It's everybody. So it doesn't work. It's not like, oh, it really works for this channel only. It's ubiquitous, which is actually a big challenge for WhatsApp, which is why it's hard for them to build tools specific for WhatsApp for business, because you can't verticalize it. By the time you verticalize and do all these different offshoots of it, for us, we have everything. We have people selling food. We have people selling legal services. You have people selling uh, moving services. You have people selling clothes, accessories. We have e-commerce companies as, our, as a category, as one of our verticals. So this is businesses that consider themselves, well, e-commerce for them is their primary sales channel, yet they still use our service in addition. They all already have a website and they're already powering it. Correct. The, some, I can give you some shocking stats. I mean, 86% of our power users already have a website. 
50% of them already have e-commerce capability. This is definitely distinguished from your typical e-commerce experience. So are you a complementary channel in that sense, or are you like a customer service tool or a payments platform? It's because we're so hyper-focused on payments. That's the job they hire us for. It's a sales tool more than a customer service. So I do want to get into it. Like, I think you had some other points you wanted to raise maybe about what was it, what is it like operating a company like this in a, an environment like this? Right. What, what, meaning we both chatted about potent, obviously in a pandemic environment, but also in a emerging market environment where it's not, there's not the tradition and the mindset that you have out of Silicon Valley or out of the US or other sort of developed startup ecosystems. Well, I think one thing that's interesting that, I mean, I always think about with this stuff when, you, when you're dealing the Shopify of Asia or the, you know, the eBay of Europe, or like when you, when you think about Rocket Internet, and if you saw Y Combinator this year, a lot of it was, uh, you know, X of Y. It was geographically driven, emerging market driven for a lot of the stuff that had been going on in the US. And you're like, oh, is that like late, late cycle type? Is, it, is that indicating that, you know, we've essentially kind of run out of new things to come up with because everything is a little bit of a switch of everyone. And you're seeing a lot of people, a lot of the, the major platforms kind of cross Mojination. Like you, it's hard to tell a lot of the difference of what a Shopify versus a Square versus Facebook partnering with whoever versus you know the bajillion things that exist in fintech in terms of what's Stripe doing, what's PayPal doing, why are there all these new companies? You know, why is everyone so excited about checkout or, or these things? But when you do think about regions. I look at like emerging markets, like one thing that always stands out, obviously, with the Dubai having lived there is cash. And particularly today in this Bitcoin environment and what's Bitcoin up today and like another 10% and the Democrats being elected. And if you're in the UAE, cash is a daily thing. You can go to ATM machine and pull out $5,000. It's not like that's not an unusual thing to be able to do. And the denominations of the bills go up. Like people use cash a lot. It's common to have a lot of cash on hand. I always used to remember traveling back and forth between the U.S. and there when you're when you're international. When you come stateside, it's like, why do you have cash? Like you go to an ATM machine, it's like you you've hit fifty dollars. This machine can dispense fifty dollars. You're like, what is what the hell's going on here? Type of thing. So I, I think one thing that's actually kind of interesting when you're looking at what you're doing as a business tool. I mean, like, I, I think COVID is without a doubt an accelerant for that in, in, any, in, in any market. But by nature, the move away from cash solves problems for businesses, particularly for small businesses, because, you know, having records of things, ordering something, being able to trace it back, who spent what, et cetera, leakage, drivers, delivery guys, stuff like, I mean, is that, is, is that an element? Yeah, big time. I mean, going pre-COVID, we were trying to help people transition into cashless, into contactless payments and remote payment. You know, that was that was our game. And it was always like, yeah, but there's still this consumer behavior. And we would talk to merchants that are like, yeah, I'd love for my customers to pay by card, but they just don't want to. And there's this bad behavior that's being that that had always been perpetuated by the e-commerce companies because most orders, like when you look at the the big marketplaces here, the big e-commerce sites, they give you, everyone has to give you the option of cash on delivery. 
What is cash on delivery? I mean, is that, is that even a thing in the U.S.? So cash on delivery, it's like... Uh, COD, yeah, it used to yeah, be. COD, <laughs> COD, it's like, well, my competitor is offering COD, so I have to. Because if someone's going to buy a toaster, and I go back to the consumer for a sec, I'm going to buy a toaster, I'm going to buy from this website, and I don't. they haven't done a great job of like giving me reviews about this seller or how good this toaster is. I would feel much better if it arrived, and I don't know when it's going to deliver because when the logistics infrastructure is broken, it, it also induces more cash and delivery. Why? Because I don't know, is this product, if I order this universal remote control, does it arrive tomorrow? Or is it arrive in five days or seven days or three days? I have no idea. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to three e-commerce websites and order them all, order the same thing from all three of them. And basically, it's a race. And the first one that gets to my, my residence and delivers it to me, that's what I'm going to buy it from. And I have no risk as a consumer. I'm just going to waste all these people's time, get them to take it out of inventory, put it on a, on a bike, deliver it to my house. Oh, and I can just cancel at the door. No, no big deal. I'll just cancel. Oh, the other two, I just don't open the door when they arrive. So had all the e-commerce companies kind of unionized, if you will, and said, look, we're just not going to do cash on delivery anymore. This problem could have been solved probably much sooner. Now, the problem with cash on delivery is it's a double-edged sword. Like as a business, I would have to offer it because my customers, that's how they want to buy. But when you do cash on delivery, you're going to use often third-party logistics. And when you use third-party logistics, you're guess who's taking the cash? That delivery driver, I don't even know. And where does he take it? Back to the logistics hub. And when do they give it to me? Uh, a week later? And do they charge me a hand and they charge you a handling fee and all this other stuff? So it's not helpful to me from a cash flow perspective at all to offer this if I'm running a business. So after COVID, it was like finally the government, you know, was like, okay, actually, we should create some incentives to go cashless because from a germ spreading perspective, okay, it could be really bad. But all of a sudden, so when you're talking about the inflection of what COVID did and what it, what it did to cash being used. Imagine how that's much more dramatic in a market like this. Right now you go everywhere. Everyone's using their phone. It's all Apple Pay, Google Pay. All right. That's like been completely normalized in one year. It's shocking. And it turns out that all these people were paying cash this whole time, not because they didn't have credit cards or debit. It's because they just didn't want to use their cards because they didn't want to trust. You know, they, they wanted to take advantage of the system a little bit. And it looks like, in actuality, cash on delivery isn't really what they're looking for, per se. A lot of that, they just want payment on delivery. So if the delivery guy brings a payment machine and I can swipe my card, that's even better. So there's a lot of confusion going on. But I think finally what's happened now is businesses are like, okay, I got it. I need to take cards because it's probably I'll probably get my money into my account faster this way. And I can make sure that I'm not wasting all my delivery guys' time on getting failures at the door, cancellations at the door. And I don't have to, it, so it's just far more effective. Oh, and by the way, when I do it this way, I have a much clearer record of who's paid and not paid. And I've digitized my backend solution. So now I can see I have a record of everything. Oh, this is something, what can I do with that now? So that yeah, you're, getting, you're getting data. Yeah. That normalization occurred very quickly here. And us as the company who was like endorsing this, this type of behavior from pre-COVID, we just got very lucky that 
all of a sudden this is what's in demand and this is what people woke up to overnight. Yeah, so I mean, why don't you walk us through a little bit of that? So like co- coming into COVID, you guys were, you were essentially growing based on, on the back of what you were describing, like so, some customers who had e-commerce and were adding this kind of conversational commerce payment tool element, some SMBs who are trying to en- enable this as a sales channel. I mean, like, like if you were to characterize your, your business momentum pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, it was a lot of people, it, w- it was a lot of small businesses. And we'd have the occasional larger business that would come to us and say, hey, this solution's awesome. Can you integrate with this? And can you do these seven things for us? And we'd love to explore that. And we would pay you tons of money if you could do that. So I would say about a year, year and a half ago, we kind of had to make a decision because that's two different products, right? Your enterprise product and your SMB product are totally different. And most people, if you are in a situation like that, you can go chase the enterprise one because the enterprise one will give you faster ROI if you can reduce the sales cycle. Pretty and there are use cases and you can do that. But something told us, wait a minute, like Square, Shopify, when, when you look at a market like the UAE, where 99% of businesses are SMBs, we're going to go cater to the 1% and go for, for that pie, or we're going to go for the 99%. So we took a deliberate decision. You know what? We, we really like serving SMB. We like it for a few reasons. One is they don't see us as another widget or tool or thing that integrates with that. They see it as their all-encompassing. Like we become their, it's the central hub for them. This is their primary sales channel. This is where they store their customer data. This is where they store their order history. This is where they store everything. We don't need to worry about integrations per se because they're not using anything else. So we become their starter kit for building your business and having digital tools. So SMB have their own set of problems. In this part of the world, it is mind-blowing how difficult it is for your average small business to get a payment gateway or get an acquiring bank to give you payment processing. You have to go, whether you go to a payment gateway direct or to an acquiring bank direct, okay, get in line, fill out this application form. We need two years audited financials. We need to know transaction history, who are your top five suppliers, who are your top five customers. What's this, what's that? The KYC is grueling. And you'll fall out very quickly from that. Your typical SMB that's been in business for a few months or less than two years is frankly, probably going to have no chance at getting it. And even if they do, it's going to take them two to three months. And at the end of that process, what happens? The bank or the gateway spits out to you, here's your merchant ID. Okay, what do I do with that? We'll give that to your web developer to integrate to your card software. Okay, well, I don't have a web developer. Okay, well, you know, go figure that out now. Okay, now I have to go spend six months building this Frankenstein so that I can start selling online. That's how the market was, it's fragmented like that. Now, what I love about Square and Shopify, and I think the the biggest attribute to their success, which is not so commonly spoken of, is what they said was, look, SMBs are overwhelmed. Figuring out how to get on the grid with payments and processing payments and getting acceptance and getting that into your bank account is its own challenge. Figuring out the software and interface you need, and whether it's a website or a point of sale or a terminal or whatever it is that your customers can interact with, That's its own challenge. 
So what they did was they married these two things together. Is that we're actually a one-stop shop, right? So you get your payments solved and you get your software solved all at once. And by the way, you can do that in 10, less than 10 minutes. We said, that's the value prop we like. And if we focus on that, we can serve the 99%. So we kind of have to let go of the enterprise side of things for now. I think this opportunity is much more interesting for us. These businesses come to us. We are making their lives much easier now because it's like a, a cathartic moment. Like, oh my God, this is such a relief. You've solved like 10 problems for me at once. Love you guys. And they start transacting and we help them get their business up and running. Well, guess what? Now we're in a better position to help the SMB with some analytics. We can help the, you know, the playbook kind of, you, you can imagine where it goes, but they also need help with payroll and with expenses and they want to have a loyalty program and they want to have remarketing solutions and they want to have, oh, I can get a debit card, you know, issue. You can help me get one. That's great. You can help me with all these other things, expense management. So as a vector, you open up so many more opportunities with SMB and how much impact you can have in that segment in a nascent market like this. Okay. So if you look at it from that standpoint, that's where you were at before COVID. You're still in, in an emerging market. You're still, I mean, the UAE, Dubai, tourism is what? Like the bulk of the economy, population, expat-driven, churn for a business, I guess, it's got to be pretty high, right? Like as, as easy as to set one up, it's just as easy to walk away, right? COVID comes along. I mean, is that like when this started going in the direction that it was going as a, a pandemic globally, did you anticipate that you would be seeing something that oh, would be great for your business? Or was this something where you were from, like from day one, okay, you know, we're just kind of managing things as we go. I mean, like if you can walk us through that, because we've done a lot of these, I mean, if you've listened, as you said earlier for our, some of our shows, like, you know, what's, how did, how did that, how did that play out for you guys? Okay. So the year starts, we have some ambitious plans. We have a budget in mind for how much we're going to spend and, how much growth we, we expect uh, chugging along nicely January, February, and then Dubai hits massive lockdown, right? Like total lockdown. And what we're worried about isn't that our value prop it has changed. It's actually been made so much more important, but the concern is do these business, will these businesses, survive this and how long can they go? I mean, how do, how are they, their, their business interrupted now. So what the data showed us was half or so of our active user base immediately went to zero. So we had like a recurring user base that suddenly has a, as a drop off and that's not good. And, you know, we start thinking, oh no, this is, you know, this is, this is worst case scenario. So then within the same week, literally the same week as that happening, our new user growth skyrockets. And it overtakes the business we were doing, that, that 50% within, within that month, we had already hit new highs. So this all happens in, within a few weeks. So and like, are you guys putting the word out? People just discover you? Like, how did no, that happen? It was like uh, a tremendous amount of organic at that time, lots of organic. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't respond fast enough. We started hiring people immediately at that time. 
and businesses were just signing up, signing up, signing up. And we were converting them and talking to them and activating them and doing all this stuff. And we didn't have enough hands on deck to do this. Then we understood that, hey, what if we actually do a lot more marketing and we actually advertise this during this time? And we started learning how to do that better and better. And so by the, the end of the year, we saw a return of our regular user base up to that point, plus all the new guys, which was much more than before. So you're talking about like 600% growth between January and December. And the nature of businesses and who was using it had morphed as well, right? So at that time, they turned into a lot of food delivery. They turned into a lot of really interesting like online classes, fitness classes, online Zoom this, Zoom that, therapy, online therapy and mental wellness and how to quit smoking and all this, all these things that people were sitting at home. We have thousands of merchants, right? So I can give you some anecdotal quirky stuff. Like there is someone called uh, Princess Parties. And what they would do is they, they used to come to your home and help create a party for your kids. But now they would just do this over Zoom. And someone on, on Zoom would basically dress up as a Disney character. You guys would like this. Someone dressed up as a Disney character and Zooms with your kid for an hour, you know, for like $300 an hour. And so this was a new thing. I mean, are we talking like I can get Lion King or Little Mermaid? You absolutely can do that. <laughs> right? And you can do that from comfort of, of your chair right now. Can I order Jafar? Like if I want a sinister? I don't know if they keep that outfit <laughs> up. Less popular, yeah. Um, probably, if you're willing to pay for it, they, they do. <laughs> so it was just like all this new crazy stuff. And we were just now a, we weren't calling the shots anymore. We weren't saying, hey, listen, you know, we should really focus on this category. Do that. It was just like we were in pure reaction mode. Right. So all these gyms were like, listen, we've shut down all of our clubs. And we've moved to completely 100% virtual fitness now. And can we use you for, for payment? Yeah, you can. How long does it take to set up? Five, five minutes? Okay, yeah, okay. And they'd refer 10 other people. And, you know, it, would just, it went berserk. And so I felt really awkward at that. You know, all the, you can read all the books you want about companies that hit, like, these growth inflections and what to do next and, you know, what it was like. But we were now living it. And it was... It was a bit surreal. What is the split, by the way, when you talk about stuff like that, that that's like between services and, and goods? Like is, I mean, would you say your business is more, your, your merchants are more driven by essentially providing services? Services represent about 40% of our actual stores. So from a volume of stores perspective, 40% are just selling services. They have no physical product to sell. But they represent a much higher average basket. They represent a much higher revenue and like gross processing value than goods. We like that category. One, it's, it's completely underserved. Two, it's there's a good LTV there. Which is what? You want my, our LTV numbers? No, 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 I'm not saying your numbers. I'm saying like <laughs> the term. Sometimes some of the people don't oh, get lifetime, uh, lifetime value. value. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, our acquisition costs <laughs> or something like that, we can we, we would make up in a matter of weeks. I mean, we have businesses that come online, and the trade-off for us is we provide a lot of transparency. Okay, so we have a flat rate 
when it comes to our payment processing. It's not subject to this. And if you hit that, you know, volume, then we're going to give you the price. We just made it simple. We don't have hidden fees. There's no per transaction fee. A lot of the gateways have figured out how to hide fees. So it's going to be, you know, you can come start at 2.5%. And then when you actually do your settlement report at the end of the month, you're like, wait a minute, I just paid 5% effectively. So we don't, we don't do that. We charge a flat rate. It's three and a half percent. So it provides predictability to the merchant. It provides predictability to us. It's a good dynamic. So a business like that, you can come in like we've had, we have at the end of the year, end of 2020, Dubai is back, by the way. So you guys are welcome. You can come party here. Everything's open. So there was like the, the nightclubs were open again. And you have, to, you have to get a booking at these places. You have to book ahead of time. And these bookings are not cheap. You know, some people are paying for their party, you know, four or $5,000, sometimes eight, $10,000 for a table booking. And so how, how are you supposed to, how is the nightclub supposed to know, okay, I'm going to hold this table for you, Akram. Okay, well, what if you decide not to show up? Right now I've lost that revenue and I can't fill this table last minute. It's going to be very tough. So they've wisened up and now, you know, let's capture that. If you book, you're going to pay now. You're booking it now. So you could see in one month, you know, someone comes in and does half a million or a million dollars in sales. You're saying that they're charging in advance? Yeah. Okay. Right. And, no, I just listened to, uh, I don't know if you listened to it, Daniel. It was really good. The Invest Like the Best, Nick Kakonas talk. I didn't listen to that one, no. You should listen to that one. The He's the, the guy who started uh, Alinea. The business partner of, of Grant, yeah. The business partner of Grant. If you if you've watched the Alinea episode on a chef's table, I, yeah, I, 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 I okay, yeah. So it's his business partner in that in Chicago. He was a former derivatives trader. So he started like a business for for the F and B industry that is like you know the hybrid of the booking system of Open Table called Talk, focusing on the higher end restaurants where. You're selling tickets. Alinea is working on a model where we're gonna we're gonna take our cash up front, and and you know when you get into this whole Amazon and negative working capital and and all these types of things, but a lot of services businesses have people who who cancel at the last second, and a lot of these things are like you know he was explaining where which is funny when you listen to it because he's like a lot of a lot of times when they figure out why they give you a window for a reservation. And you show up at the restaurant and you end up waiting 45 minutes is because they will double book that because they assume certain cancellations. And like sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. Like nobody had really ever approached it and been like, why don't we optimize this? He wanted to create this system as former options trader. And if you think of back, Rami, it's, it's funny when you think about it, because I think back to the the grub with us and, and, and selling t- social dining, but like the element of the people who who come to a meal to buy a ticket and how the price changes for the last one or the first one. But this system essentially taking an approach like that where he, he actually talks about options and expiration and you know how the premium changes and looking at the restaurant business from a standpoint of nobody had thought about solving this problem and the data and you now have your customer and you have them in there, you know who it is because once they show up, like that's actually also very important. And these are things that ha- had not been addressed. So it, it, it's interesting when you think about it 
Like he hadn't talked yet about applying it to other services, but he hints at it. And when you think about bookings for like, if, if I have a person who's coming to, if I have a hot club and in that window, when I think about going back on it, like, you know, whether it's New York or, or Dubai or London or LA, I have a clientele that's spending a lot of money who's, for, let's call it from a customer acquisition standpoint, very valuable for that window that they're coming. I can collect a lot of data. I can take cash up front. And these are things that are not being done. Because like, you do point out a lot of things here with Zbuni and cash and e-commerce and COD, where it's like, why didn't they just do this already? Because it's better for their business, right? You don't have the leakage. You don't have these things. So when I do think about the, the nightclub charging up front, may, maybe one of the legacies of COVID is, is going to be to change the, let's call it the cash flow statement element of event-driven businesses. And once, I'll give you an example, we have a physiotherapist using our service. And it used to be, I'm going to call in, I need to make an appointment. My doctor said I have to do rehab. So can I come in and make my first session Tuesday at two o'clock? Before, if you're a no-show, they just lost out on that, that window, hour and a half down the drain for the clinic. And no cost to you, buddy, for, for making that fun. So now, so they use our system to charge a partial deposit. Now I'm hooked. Now their no-shows have dramatically decreased. So, cause you pay and you don't want to just lose out on that. So their no-shows decreased. And now they're telling people, by the way, if you want to prepay for your next eight sessions or whatever it is, we're going to give you a 20% discount. Okay. So use that same channel to sell that eight, eight uh, session package instead. So the optionality for the business to close transactions has changed by doing this, this new method. Because cash, you can't do that, right? I'm not going to go in and prepay with cash and then leave. So it, it gives much more optionality to the, the business. It's funny that you talked about tenants because I went through that recently during COVID for indoor tenants. Like they demanded you need to come in. They wouldn't take credit or debit cards. So like it was cash or a check. Right? It's like, who wants a check right now? But they're so overwhelmed with bookings that like you literally had to beg them. So it was like once got a time slot, it was like, okay, I'm going to run in. I'm going to meet you guys there. I'll show up. I'll bring a check. I'll do this. What do I need to do? And also on, on the, the Kokonas episode, he, he actually gets into like the element of like, you know, let's say you have a dentist. Why is the appointment occurred at a certain time? Well, you have some dentists that everybody wants to have like an 11 o'clock and then there's all these other people different open times, well, that dentist should be able to charge a premium for that window slot if a lot of people are competing over that time at a certain time because that dentist is so popular. So there's a lot of stuff when you look at it from services businesses about optimizing around demand and supply in real time that had not been being done. There was no legitimately good reason for why it wasn't done this way other than the fact that you weren't thinking about it. It just had kind of been the norm. And nobody had really, and like he really gets into that I recommend both of you guys listen to it. It was my it was my favorite podcast of the year by far. To say that in terms of the things I listened to, maybe I'm I'm biased because I I love the Alinea episode, but the Alinea, the Alinea food episode is such like an interesting journey about Grant's life and he gets cancer and and you know like the chef who couldn't taste and all and all that other stuff, which was like I, I would say probably the breakout episode for a chef's table on Netflix, but he was kind of like an afterthought on that episode, like he pops in. And actually, when you listen to this guy, you're like, wow, this is a dynamic combination on both ends, both in terms of the creativity and skill of cooking, 
But then about a guy who's coming from a financial background and his approach to the business of dining that was really, to me, more revolutionary in his thinking and what he's learning as he partners with this chef than the chef who's taking apart foods and changing the experience. So it is actually funny that you mentioned that, that, that businesses are because that's actually very recently in, in my head in terms of a potential shift in the way things will go going forward. Because it, look, if you look about what investors get excited the most about when they talk about stories in investing and it goes on ad nauseum, it's Amazon. Amazon is the poster child for all of this. And a lot of everything that is focused on on Amazon, at least from the investment community, is like, oh, well, I mean, you know, Amazon has had this tremendous cash flow that has allowed it to persistently reinvest in its business. So there's like, there's like, let's call them the 1.0 school of like amateur hour type of Amazon bulls. Like, oh, I bought Amazon. I held it for so long. I'm a genius. I saw it coming. And I'm always like, once you like, once you've gone through enough stuff in the market, you you will get to a point where you're like, yeah, you know what? Bullshit. The future's not written. Nobody could have seen anything coming, including the people at Amazon. There was a really great thread earlier in the year. A guy retired this year. He'd been in Amazon for a while. I don't remember his name. It was Dan something maybe, where he talks about Bezos approaching Meg Whitman at eBay and being like, hey, let's partner up. I want to get into this like third-party auctioning, whatever, right? The third-party seller, because it was a completely first-party driven business. And basically... Meg Whitman was like, you know, politely like, fuck off, right? We're not interested. We don't need you guys. And that Amazon became obsessed with figuring out how to get into that business after they were essentially told by eBay that merger, acquisition, working together in some way was just not happening. And that's what they did for several years. I mean, they transformed that business. So that's when this guy stepped off, he wrote a whole thread about it re recently. And it's like, it's like, all right, I mean, Amazon had a panic attack before you even got to AWS about, you know, essentially the eBay model. And they became supremely focused about being a place for third-party merchants because he realized what about the third-party merchant? I can sell them services. I can basically be a business tool provider to them, particularly fulfillment, you know, which was one thing that he was, he'd been investing in heavily himself, but, you know, charging fees, payment processing, taking commissions. You know, all that stuff that came in was something that like they looked at eBay and they're like, damn, eBay's model is fantastic because then you don't want to, you don't necessarily get so excited about being first party. But in, in, in the genesis of that story is a company, well, that had negotiated payment terms with suppliers. I mean, like people always look at Amazon and you'll get some people who are like, oh, the inventory turns are high. Like, you know, I mean, Walmart and Target are also really good at that, right? The difference between Walmart and Target and Amazon over the longest time, at least in, in, in the commerce standpoint, is that Amazon's payables take a while. So they have a float that has been persistently reinvested in the business. Unlike some stocks, where, which I've criticized from a short side or done short theses on with it, which get compared to Amazon in the past financially, because people are like, they lost money for all this time. Well, no, they didn't really lose money. They generated, they kept adding businesses that add on a tremendous amount of cash flow which they were able to consistently reinvest in their own business till they eventually get into something like an AWS, which is a 40% operating margin business. So I, I do think that like, it's like something that like someone discovers one thing there, like Amazon started out as like a bookseller, but the third party merchant element of it was incrementally something that he saw at eBay 
that he wanted, which he didn't have, which was a better business. And in that time that they essentially went after that in a very focused fashion, they took something that eBay should have gotten really good at, right? Because eBay was kind of really focused on this auction process and, and how, to work, how to work at it. So I, I do think that these things kind of happen by accident sometimes, or something kind of provides a catalyst, like in this case, like COVID, where you look at a per- certain part of your business, you're like, well, that's actually better. And why wasn't I doing it something this way before? Because I'm set up to benefit that way. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. At what point do you think uh, Jeff Bezos realized he had this uh, float? I mean, do you think that was part of the blueprint early on? Or, or? I don't know. I, 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 I haven't seen him articulate it, but I will say that people underappreciate the fact that like, you know, there was, a, there was a biotech stock I shorted last year and got a lot of grief over it. And I, I still, to this day, get point out to people that they have had to persistently raise a ton of capital. And they've compared themselves to Amazon and what they do, as in like we're investing in our business. Investing in your business means that all stakeholders have have an alignment. And that that's something where in Amazon's case, they were serving their customer very well, but they also had that as working capital to fund the tremendous amount of investment and infrastructure that they needed for a very long time period. And that's why he's been, he was able to run the business the way they did. And I think that's where progressively you start looking at what has better unit economics. And that's when you see them start doing what the, the, I was very surprised, by the way, I had no clue with all the business stuff about the approach to eBay and how this became an internal project and how really that transformed the business from zero, literally almost zero third party to third party being the bulk of the business in a span of five years. I, I think COVID has brought out a lot. I mean, like you see a lot of people here in the US and I don't know, Daniel, if you, you've talked to people about this as well, but I mean, the postal service breakdown for certain businesses here is like, I haven't got, I, checks have not come. People still use checks and it'd be like, I'm expecting this check in the mail and it didn't arrive and so on and so forth. And heard stories wrong. these lines of payments. And it's very interesting when you look at payments, even here with dealing with the banking system, and, and we're going to put a hold on this deposit and the, the, so on and so forth. When you've got these other tools, like I can instantaneously send money over Venmo in minutes and seconds. And then you have a banking system that is still operating in two weeks and three weeks. And I did like, I, I can't pay the supplier because the, po- the postal service is having COVID issues. And I'm still expecting to get a check from this company that typically comes, you know, two weeks after. So float and these types of dynamics. I don't know whether whether Bezos and these guys thought about it, but I mean, I I can see how. And I don't know if you've been following this barstool fund for the the small for the restaurant business. I mean, I don't know. Like, are you, uh, Rami, have you seen what's going on in the U.S. with the big fight over dining out and like who, what businesses can operate under COVID and what can't? Right. I mean, have you guys run into the, like it doesn't seem like I've heard much about that in in other markets, where the where the lockdowns, the lockdowns here have disproportionately benefited the conglomerates. Right. If you're Chipotle and McDonald's, th- this is putting competitors out of business because you can. This is just something natively that you're set up to operate in. Some of these guys don't have the cash or the, the we're running their business month to month, particularly certain high-end types of restaurants or things like that. They had never been forced to optimize in, in many cases too. That's another thing that I think you can 
like you can take away from listening to the way the Alinea guy describes a lot of things around his his startup talk. But when you when you when you guys use the phrase like the COVID lottery winners, and if you put us in that category, that's fine. But who are the COVID lottery winners that next year it's it goes back to normal and they're no it's a temporary uh, win versus a long term win. All right. So what happens to the zooms of the world in 2022, uh, late at the end of this year or whatever? Versus who are the true long term winners versus short term winners? Have you guys looked at that like from a public market perspective? I mean that yeah, that's a huge theme for us, and that's what you've not. I, I you know I think. As usual, I think Akrab has opinions. I have maybe fewer opinions, but we are trying to sort that out. I think what's so interesting about what you said, and maybe you're, this is where you're trying to go, is I when you first said we like services more and look at all these people, Zoom classes, whatever, and I was like, oh, okay, but that's that's got to be a temporary side hustle. I've got to do stuff until I can go out and have a normal life. But then when you talk about change in behavior and if dubai you're saying is relatively open so you can actually sort of see the other side of the rainbow here you're seeing and i guess this is what you're hinting at like you're seeing actual fundamental change in how people pay for things how people close sales how people interact with how people transact in general i guess and that's which is to your to a company like zbuni that is facilitating these sorts of transactions, that's a big plus. I mean, is that what you're seeing? Uh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I guess I can report to you guys from the future. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. And I can tell you what's going on. And I, I'll give you my, my take on this, the food delivery stuff. Right. So I've gotten so accustomed to eating at home. The occasional me and my wife going out and eating at not a fancy place, just a regular kind of, whatever place there's no we don't have any desire to do that because we, we value going out now so if we go out we're going to go somewhere nice so i think people will value going out again and when they go out they're going to spend their time more wisely on where they go and if it's not something special just do it at home i think that's one so you're a bit more selective of how you spend your time that's one thing but i think in in relation to our you know this zoom what, what does Zoom look like in the future? It's definitely less. There's no doubt about that. We, we missed meeting face-to-face -face and people are, are exhausted. Like I give the option now for every meeting, would you like to do Zoom or would you like to, because I can't impose. So the office, we're, we're back to normal. Back to people. So people prefer, are going in to the office. They prefer to come into the office. They prefer, okay. Yeah. And you have a few engineers who they, they've always liked working from home. So that, that never changed, but it was never like, Oh, I like working for, I, I just was introduced to this new concept and this is better. I'm going to keep working from home. But I, I think that face to face, like it's so much more effective. This notion of, Oh yeah, you know, it, we, we didn't need to meet after all. We could have done this all. No, you couldn't have, right? Like we're, there's so many little things you're missing, right? I can walk by someone's desk and have an impromptu, oh, by the way, I forgot to ask you about this. How annoying is it to be like, oh, if I want to ask so-and-so a question, I'm going to need to send him an email, ask him if he's available, what are his time slots, and set up a, you know, it's impractical. It's not, 
it's not useful for a, a company that's growing and needs to have synergies and needs to talk to each other, needs to communicate. Slack, I know you guys are big fans. We use, we use that still all the time because that's more of like memorializing certain plans and putting them in place and uh, keeping track of things. But uh, Zoom, I mean, I'm talking to you guys on Zoom, but if you have the option, you're not going to do a Zoom call anymore. So you actually look at that as say it's trailed off. So I mean, look, look, Zoom was a great product before COVID. I mean, it's not like it was the most expensive software company pre-pandemic before we got to the the snowflakes and the uh, 50,000 SPACs of the world. But as far as, I mean, day-to-day for your business, I mean, I know for me, just like the whole Zoom social element and people talking over Zoom, that had trailed off by like by like June. Like where it's not like, hey, let's let's just get together and sit and talk on Zoom for an hour. Like that's just people moved on with their lives. Yeah, the novelty is over. Yeah, the novelty element is over. You're like not like Zoom social hour, these things like that were like the first two months of COVID. And that's where you get into some of these services businesses that were built around Zoom, which you're kind of dying to get back in the gym. But that's where you look at it and you say, Yeah, but did did one element of my business that's advantageous to me change? I.e., if I'm a personal trainer and I think about Dubai, like, I mean, the personal trainer business is a, is a big business for people out there, right? I mean, you've you got tons of people who, who just move there and, and are personal trainers. And why, why can't they now with this bill in advance and sell a package? Like I had a, I had a personal trainer in Dubai once who, I mean, you've probably heard this story, who like just kind of flaked. <laughs> I, I, paid in advance and like kind of like you just don't have a way of proving it and you have a conversation over WhatsApp and then like the guy kind of just disappeared and it's awkward and you don't want to follow up. And I think that like if I'd had Spoonie then, it would have been like, all right, well, you know, here's the invoice and here's what you owe me. And and I'm going to forward this to what whatever community is managing this type of stuff and deal with it. It's not like I paid you this in cash and you, I paid for 10 sessions up front. And I was like kind of doing you a favor and so on and so forth. You've changed that dynamic. And that's where you solve maybe for him in that case, but for if he'd actually been able to sell that in advance, that's a benefit. And it's a benefit for me. It's a win-win in both parts of the transaction. It's just like when you think about Uber and and taxis. I mean, I, I always think about certain places, like when you go and like, you know what it's going to cost in advance. Well, I can, I can, we didn't talk about this, but. It was probably December last year where we, we started thinking about putting our new, putting our Series A together, all right? So we started planning a roadshow and we put together all of our materials. So by January, we had started, right? We started making contact with investors and they were like, okay, yeah, we like this. This is cool. Some of them would just dismiss it. Some of them would be excited, you know, the usual. February comes, okay, we're warming up. We got all these options. We got a bunch of investors lined up. It, you know, by February, it's looking pretty like, who are we going to go with, guys? <laughs> you know, by March, it was like crickets. And half these investors just disappeared. And it wasn't like, hey, sorry, we're not interested. It was like, hey, we're, we're worried about our own existence. Okay, we don't know what's going on. We, we've put all investments on hiatus. Can you give us till the end of the year or something? Then you couldn't meet anyone anymore. So imagine you, you, you have to raise your Series A without physical meetings. That was an interesting dynamic. The business is doing well. And all, by the way, we have existing investors in the, in the company. Some are institutional. 
you always want to go back to them and be like, okay, you, are you, how do you feel about taking series A? Where are you on this? Again, worried about their own existence. I don't even, it wasn't even about, is this company growing and how well is it doing? It's just like, even if you are, you're, you're doing better than I am, buddy. I need to protect my, my, my nut here. Right. So you're kind of left very vulnerable if you're trying to raise money in that environment. Our numbers were just getting better and better. And despite that, it was hard to find resonance with investors because of the timing. And I, we ended up clicking with a quite a sophisticated investor out of London. And that process was super interesting because, yes, all of our meetings were on Zoom and I was presenting virtually everything. And it really came down to the data has to speak for itself. I didn't get a chance to, you know, charm them and be, you know, and do anything persuasive in these meetings and do anything cool. It was just like, what does the data say? Give us the information. Does it make sense? Yes or no. It was, so it was much more the data doing the storytelling. And at that point, you know, they were like, okay, yeah, we like this. We ended up closing a series A, which had been our largest investment to date. And I had never met my investors face to face. And the funny thing is like, there was, it was kind of like, we're talking investments and data and projections and stuff. So we didn't really have cameras on. I mean, I don't even know what they look like. I had no idea what they looked like. So uh, that was a very interesting dynamic. I don't know if that's how we would do it again. You know, I think there's so much more value in meeting face-to-face. You can build, you know, camaraderie. You can build some, some you build a stronger relationship, like some personal relationship. But I, I just wanted to point that out because that was something we went through that was probably very atypical. There's some poetry in a chat commerce payments company <laughs> signing an investment round without seeing people over Zoom, though. So I like that. I wanted to just quickly go back to the the changing behavior thing, because your negative working capital is my prepaid expenses or whatever else. Any thoughts on it? Like for the customer perspective, there's some, obviously you pay up front for an annual, you get a discount or whatever, but like, do you have any insight into customers going because that's like that's you know if i go to a restaurant if i'm planning for to go to a restaurant on saturday and i want to sit outside and then it turns out that it's going to rain and i don't go or whatever i'm feeling sick then i'm out for whatever i've put down for my deposit or whatever like how do you or maybe i miss like over exaggerating the the shift but like how is that when you look at those services what do you see from your level. Well, I mean, that's where you, isn't that where you flip the equation and the where you flip it kind of back in the favor in the favor of the business running that. Like you'll get some partial refund, you get this. The they'll say whether like it's like buying a ticket for a concert, right? What happens if it gets rained out? True, or, or, right? Yeah. Like you've pre, you've pre-sold that ticket. So again, yeah. I, I, Daniel, you definitely should listen to the Kokonas one because this is where you get into derivatives time expiration when it's actually the idea of an options trader and as someone who's traded options for ages thinking about these things it, the clock is running right and that changes what something is worth at different points in time and there's no industry more than the restaurant business where that is a big part of the equation in terms of how you manage your business because he doesn't talk about like 
by the way, he talks about for Alinea that they took advantage of this and it's not like they're stretching their payables. They're actually discovered that paying their suppliers upfront works even better. But like you've changed cash flow dynamics for you, which for a lot of these businesses, there was no sensible reason to not be doing this based on the tools that are available, other than the fact that you had not adopted them before and had just become complacent with it. Does the consumer lose to, a, to some degree? Yes. But do they benefit in other ways? Their argument is yes also. From a customer experience standpoint, they're better equipped to deal with Daniel when he comes in because they know he came in on this night in the past and he had this meal and he was served by this guy. And this is exactly what like for, for an events focused business like that, that, that knows that they're trying to impress you in, in a certain way, shape or form. I think there's. I think Daniel's question is valid because when you have to prepay now, we don't know if the service was was provided or not. Right, so it introduces it opens the door for dispute. So how do I respond as a business to that? Like I'm a small business owner, so we we see examples of that. You know, people sign up for meal plans, and they prepay for a month, and then this meal plan is not what I thought, and this diet isn't working for me. I'll cancel after week two. Normally, had you paid cash, okay, how are you supposed to get a refund? I have to go back and meet them and figure this out, and the delivery guy, and he's going to... So when you do a digital, the upside is you can refund the transaction. You can do a partial refund. You can, you can reverse what you did anyway, right? So uh, it, it allows you to do that easier than cash does often. How do you refund a check? Digital has all these attributes that... that are beneficial more so than they introduce contention, and in I, in my opinion, well, and also if your business specifically is a chat business, where not that we become best friends automatically, but there's more of an engagement to that. In theory, is an easier channel to resolve than either. You, fa- you're, it's like the channel that the sales happening is the customer service channel, right? So that's really interesting. It's it's. Good insight that you, you say that because our chargeback ratio, like a typical chargeback ratio for an e-commerce company would be probably 1% to 2%. This product was not as advertised. I don't want anything. I, I do a chargeback. I call my credit card company. Our chargeback ratio is, you're talking about 0.1%. So you're talking like a magnitude of 10x difference. Why? Because my expectations have been super well set as a consumer. I, I've talked to the, 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 the person who's selling me this thing. I've spoken to a salesperson. I know exactly what I'm going to get. I ordered exactly the right thing. We sent photos back and forth. We've talked about it for 15 minutes or half an hour or two days before I transact. And by the way, you know, this idea that small businesses, there's, there's an inverse relationship here where small businesses that engage with their, with their customers over WhatsApp end up having huge tickets. Like our average basket is close to $250, $280. What your typical e-commerce basket is in this part of the world, probably 60, right? So you're looking at a completely different dimension of things. And it's so new. And that was the scary thing. It's like, uh, you know, when you go back and, and Akram was talking about this earlier, you're the uh, Uber for this, or you're the Uber for dog walkers, or you're the Shopify for whatever. 
it's you really want to categorize things quickly. That's how our brains are, are wired to, to think. But this company was built around more of like a, our, we're trying to tap into a large unarticulated demand. And that demand is commerce has moved to a new channel. How do you build for that? And so it wasn't a playbook. It wasn't a copycat and, oh, you know, see how they, we're going to do, we're going to do it just like that. And it's all been written out for us. It's black and white. But for us, it, it's like you're doing, it's very experimental. You're going pure blue ocean. Investors don't reward that in this part of the world. So you have your biggest plays here have just been copycats. It's the, the, the big winners here have been the rocket internets. Nothing innovative comes out of here. And we like give us an example. What is the biggest winner out there? And as I mean, far as a unicorn or look at Kareem. Okay. Kareem came around uh, probably 2012, 2013. Like, you know, Uber is not here yet. We can build a better Uber for this region. And he struggled to raise capital early on, but a few people got it and he got some. You got some like family offices, some VC money. And it was an opportunity we looked at at our, and I think at that time it was like a 200 million valuation they were asking. And I was like, and he was, he was able to sell it. Like we're going to beat Uber for these reasons. We're more localized. We have, we cater for these nuances that Uber doesn't. And, you know, he had some, a few differences, but really it was Uber. Okay, same app, same everything, look alike. And lo and behold, everyone told him, yeah, good luck, buddy. And the other half, you know, a select group were like, yeah, we'll take a bet on this. And get, it sells a few years later for how much? Three billion, three and a half billion dollars. So you had, it, you had your first proper unicorn type exit. And you've had a few others, you know, Rocket Delivery Hero has made a bunch of acquisitions and consolidation here. Food ordering, food tech is huge. You have the cloud kitchen stuff going on. Is that big? Yeah, it's big. Cloud kitchens have, have caught on over there? Big time. I mean, there are cloud kitchen startups coming out of here now that are expanding to the U.S. So everything changed very radically. I mean, our... In 2011, 2012, 2013, this, that time, if you told someone, I'm, I'm working on a startup, you know, I'm here in Dubai, I'm working on a startup. It's like, oh my God, that is so adorable that you are doing <laughs> that. But I, I work at a real company. I work at Nestle. I work at whatever. So fast forward 10 years later, all the, these guys and girls, they want to work at startups. They've seen it. It's happened in front of them. It's exciting. It's, it's working. Right. So the talent pool here now is, you know, a bunch of talent they were from these adjacent industries and verticals, but they know their stuff and now they want to come bring it to the, the startup world. Yeah. They don't want to work at Google. Uh, they don't want to work at Google anymore. I mean, Google, maybe they have a good cafeteria, so maybe they're, they're attractive, but, and for the most part, this concept of, I'm a career employee at conglomerate. Uh, conglomerate, and I have job security, and I am set. And look at me, that that has eroded big time. I think in the states and here. So, 
we've been going for a while, so I don't want to uh, run on a whole new line of questioning, but I'm curious, you just raised money, you said, and you've had to, you've already had sort of a pressurized scaling environment in 2020. And we were chatting before the show a little bit about sort of the challenges in the region. Like, how do you, where do you go next? What, what is the, what is the goal of Zbuni in the 2021, like amidst this changing environment and everything else, how are you moving forward? Well, you see that businesses that come sign up with us, these SMBs, they're, they're coming in and the value prop for them and what we deliver to them is, listen, we can get you on the grid very quickly. We can give you the tools you need to sell over these channels. And you're going to start with us and you're going to start at ground zero. So you're going to have no customers, right? This is just a utility. And that utility, all of a sudden I'm starting to use it and I've done five transactions today and five more and, and 10 and 20. And all of a sudden I have my customer database in this app has given me, you know, I have 250, 300 customers. Okay, well, how do I remarket to them? How do I know which, what's my average basket? Which, what's my hottest seller? What's my worst seller? Who's my most loyal customer? How many times have they bought from me? So you, entering the world of how you use this data to make better informed decisions about your business going forward. So we're investing a lot in, from a product perspective and in that journey of a merchant that's going through their growth cycle. And no, they will not all succeed. All right. By definition, you can't have them all winners, but as a, a subgroup of them grow, some of them will stay, some of them go out of business, some of them stay stagnant, some of them will grow very quickly. And so as they grow very quickly, it's important to us that we grow just as quickly as they do. So from a product perspective, are you answering to their new needs? So the investment goes towards that. It also goes towards, listen, we're still tiny, you know, in the grand scheme of things like our, I know you guys' favorite topic is TAM, you know, our, but our TAM is pretty enormous. Like uh, you could be talking about in, in the tens of millions, right? How many small businesses are there across every vertical? So we're just scratching the surface with our merchant acquisition, with our strategies around that. So we're making some investments around that to kind of make this far more normalized into the mainstream and uh, that involves investment into marketing, into uh, customer-facing uh, personnel, things like that. So that's really where the, the investment's going. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.